All right, let's get our Bibles and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Obviously, if uh, you don't have a hard copy of the Word, you're free to use your phone or whatever you use uh, to get your eyes on. So I uh, would highly recommend you, you use those, especially if you don't have a copy of the Word with you this morning. I'm going to invite us to stand as I read these first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. <laughs> Let me remind us, uh, this is the most authoritative resource in the universe. This is an active, living word, and it's not just active and living, um, uh, you know, born out of or originating with, you know, an authoritative personality, but, but the most authoritative personality, uh, God himself. So let's give this our full attention. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you, and he will guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. You may be seated and uh, invite, invite all of us to pray together. God, we need you to enlighten the eyes of our heart. We need you to enable us to receive this word in what you describe as the good soil sort of way. That this, that this word, the living word of God, would infiltrate our hearts and yield a crop, a bumper crop, a hundredfold. And we recognize that if you don't do that, then ultimately this would be worthless. Unless you build the house, we would, we would pour over this and labor and try to understand and maybe even apply this passage and uh, we would be laboring in vain. So we're asking you to, to cause us and compel us to receive them, uh, that it would be active in our, our lives, and we'd see the fruit of that. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you're very much aware, I'm sure, uh, there are certain things in life that you have to be, you have to be all in. If you do this thing, there's no halfway approach to, to this thing. You, you have to be all in. So really easy example is skydiving. Once you jump out of the plane, there's, there's no going back. You're, you're committed. Uh, there's, there's no dec decision to just, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, you, you are free falling and you need to uh, go ahead and you know, do whatever is required to get that chute opened, right? Speaking of skydiving, there are certain vocations where uh, skydiving is you know, higher percent chance going to be required, like military service. A lot of people who join the military end up having to learn how to do this, skydive. And in the military, whether you skydive or not, uh, you are going to do this thing called swear an oath or take a vow. And essentially, when you swear an, o an oath uh, to join, you know, any branch of the military, you are giving up your life. There there's no halfway uh, approach to joining the military. Your life is no longer your own. So I've never been in the military, but I've, but I've heard uh, that, you know, they decide everything for you. 
your, your commanders, the people that you're submitting to. You're completely surrendered to their agenda. You're not, you're not free to do whatever you want. So you get up when they tell you to. You go to bed when they tell you to. You eat when they tell you to. You eat what they tell you to eat. They, they tell you what to wear. They tell you what to do. You surrender your life. You have to be all in. Another example of this is medical procedures. Think specifically of surgery. Uh, if you sign the consent form, here's what's going to happen. They're going to drug you, um, and you're going to be asleep. And then they're going to cut you open and mess with your insides. So if you sign that consent form, you're all in. You know, once the anesthesiologist shows up, uh, they, they will do whatever they want to you, right? That's, that's the deal. Uh, so there's no, there's no backing out of that once, once the um, anesthesiologist shows up. Probably the biggest example of this is marriage. There's no halfway approach to marriage, and it starts from the moment you ask the question, right? So this young man, uh, he'll get down on one knee, and he'll have a little box, and he'll open it, and there'll be a little ring in there, and he'll ask this lady will you marry me? And she can't say, eh, kind of. That's not an appropriate answer. It's a yes or no question, and you have to say yes or no. And according to Scripture, if you say yes, then the two become one mysteriously. And it says stuff like, uh, husbands, your body is no longer your own. It belongs to your wife. So if your wife says, I, I need you to hang this picture, you don't have a choice, right? <laughs> Curtain rods. If she needs you to do some kind of chore, honey-do list, it's, it's her body, right? You're her slave. You do whatever she says, right? And so that's how God says marriage works. And actually, this is how it is with God. All of these examples I've just given are, are images that God uses of our relationship with him. He says, you are in my military. You are soldiers of Christ. I've probably, against your will, drafted you into my uh, military uh, you know, kingdom expansion, Right? God does that all over scripture. He enlists people. He's like the great physician, he says. He's a surgeon. And he's going to do this invasive sanctification work in your life, whether you are really keen on him doing that or not. And God, more than anything, says we are married. All throughout scripture, he says, it's not just that I am this deity who has power and authority over you. He says, I am your husband. I am your husband. I am your head. And I will not settle for being mere acquaintances. I'm not going to settle for you putting me in the friend zone. I am your husband. And it's going to be intimate. And it's going to be intense. Now, on that, on that metaphor of marriage, let's all acknowledge that marriage is full of asking. All kinds of questions in marriage. As we've already said, marriage starts out with a question. Will you marry me? And for you gentlemen who have asked that question, you know that's a nerve-wracking experience. Even if you're sure she's going to say yes, you feel sort of vulnerable because there's still the option she could say no. And, and that's a really helpless, weak sort of position to put yourself in. And that's kind of the theme of asking. We don't like to ask because at the root of asking, there is this sensation of vulnerability and weakness. And we, we hate feeling that way. Other examples of asking in marriage, um, believe it or not, you have to ask your spouse, can we talk? You know, you assume that, well, we're married, we're doing life together, and we'll just have all this great relational time, we'll have face time, and we'll talk all the time. Not true, right? The tyranny of the urgent will, will interrupt and, and hinder you from having conversations with your spouse. These little devices we carry around in our pockets, these phones, right? You have to ask your spouse, can you please pay attention to me instead of looking at your phone 
right? The kids, they need something all the time. And so that takes, that takes precedent. And, and you actually have to do this really humbling, weak, needy thing where you go to your spouse and you say, hey, can, can we have maybe two hours of just uninterrupted time? Would that be possible? You have to ask for that. You know, another thing in marriage is you will sin against your spouse. It's inevitable. You're going to sin against this person that you love more than any other person on the planet, which means you will have to ask for forgiveness. And that feels really humiliating to have to go to someone and say, I was wrong and now I need to ask, will you please forgive me? You have to ask your spouse if they'll trust you. You think that's just assumed, but sometimes they're looking at you like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? And you have to say, I know it's hard to understand and I can't really explain my thought process, but will you just trust me on this? And that feels kind of vulnerable. Or just sort of the, the, the catch-all uh, asking scenario is, will you help me? Will you, will you help me with the kids? Will you help me do this project? Will you, will you just help me process this issue that I'm facing and I don't even have words for it and so I'm just going to ramble and I need you to, to sit with me and just help me? And it begs the question, why did God design it this way? Why did God design marriage with all this asking? And here's the answer, because God has designed intimacy and impact to be entirely founded on asking the vulnerability of asking. This is how God describes his relationship with us. He says, the intimacy of our relationship is going to be proportionate to your sincere, all the time asking me for help, being desperately dependent on me. That's, that's how God describes relational intimacy. And he says, the biggest impact in the world, like kingdom of God impact is predicated on you Asking You being weak and vulnerable and needy because God very clearly says, I'm going to perfect my power through your weakness. And so we're going to unpack this here this morning. The first thing about being all in on, on the kingdom of God and following Jesus means for, first and foremost, you will ask God for everything all the time. He wants you constantly praying that's what Silas, Timothy, and Paul say in verse 1. Their big request to the church in Thessalonica, it's not, it's not money. It's not some other resource. It's, it's this request that the people in Thessalonica would pray for them. That's their request. Please pray for us. And so again, being all in on God's kingdom, being completely on board means you are always being invited to ask God for help always asking. God says, this is a really, really good thing. In the gospel of Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. It's actually one of the only parables where Jesus tells you what the parable's about before he tells the parable. He just tells you right out of the gate, this is what I'm talking about. This is the point I'm proving. He says, I'm going to tell you a little short story to the effect that you ought to always pray and never lose heart. And then he commences to, to tell us this little story about this widow woman who goes to this unrighteous, cantankerous judge, and she's trying to get him to do something that, that he really should do, but because he's unrighteous and he's grumpy, he's not doing it. And in, in the story, eventually he does the thing that she's begging him to do because she wears him down. She annoys him. She keeps showing up at his office every day, and eventually he says, I don't even want to give you this thing, but just so that you'll leave me alone, fine. If this will get you off my back, I'll do what you're asking. And God tells that very provocative parable to say, that's how I want you to interact with me. 
I'm like the unrighteous judge. The only difference is I'm not unrighteous and I'm never annoyed. I'm, I'm ecstatic when you come to me every day. I want you constantly badgering me, constantly coming to me and begging me, crying out to me, pleading with me, like you see in the Psalms, for everything. No, no, no topic is off limits. I want you all the time asking for me to intervene. Ask me to help. Ask me to get involved. I'm never annoyed. And God actually describes that, especially you see this in the Psalms, as relational intimacy. So, so your homework later today is to go home and just pick 10 Psalms. You can just pick 10 Psalms at random or you can take like the 20s or the 30s. Just take 10 Psalms and highlight all the questions. Anything that is question-oriented. So you're going to find the psalmist saying things like, How long, God, is my life going to be miserable? I'm suffering. I'm dying here. How long is this going to happen? Or where are you, God? Because to be quite honest, it feels like you don't care. It feels like you've abandoned me. Why have you forsaken me? These are questions. And then there are going to be lots of questions, lots of requests, like, God, please renew my, my spirit. Like, give me a clean heart and, and give me a contrite disposition, right? God, deal with my enemies because I don't trust myself to wield vengeance in the lives of my enemies. I need you to wield your vengeance perfectly. I need you to intervene, God. I need you to, to get involved. And God looks at all of those requests, all of those questions, and he says, oh, this is so good. This is, this is the relational intimacy that I crave. Because again, he's your husband and you're his wife and he wants to have these honest, robust conversations. And it's not just intimacy, it's impact. So if you want, you can read Psalm 72, which is the psalm of a king. In fact, the most wealthy, most dominant king in Israel's history, King Solomon. And so he's praying for things that you would expect a king to pray for. He's asking for all kinds of important, like, national stuff, like justice for the poor and peace between the nations. And then there's this one line, really interestingly, where King Solomon prays for people to pray. He says, I ask you, God, to cultivate askers, people who will ask you to help me. And that's exactly what... Paul, Silas, and Timothy are asking for here. Again, think about this. Of all the things they could request of the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians are a very eager, zealous community of people. You know, they say if, if Paul or Silas or Timothy had asked them to raise money for this next mission venture or anything like this, they would have done it. But they say, you know, the big thing we want you to do is we want you to pray for us. Ask God all the time to help us. And honestly, we're not a we're not big fans of this. The, the emphasis and priority that God gives to prayer, if we're being honest, we're not really in agreement with that. Some of you know I used to do campus ministry. I used to work with an organization called Reform University Fellowship. And as you are probably aware, when you do campus ministry or any kind of nonprofit work, you have to raise money. And so I would be out to lunch or having a meeting with a potential donor, and there would, there would come this point where I'd ask them, you know, for money or a particular amount of money or ask them if they were interested in financially becoming a donor. A donor. And um, sometimes people would say, well, I'll have to get back to you on that. Or maybe they just say no. And then they'd say, but I'll pray for you. And I know the right answer to that is, oh, thank you. That is so encouraging. But it, it never failed. At least my initial internal response was always, really? That's it? 
just just prayer? Because I don't really want prayer. I want your money. That's, that's what I want. And I think the Holy Spirit has been very gracious to me because he never struck me down for, for being irreverent like that because that, that's a very low, horrible view to have of prayer. Um, but, but honestly, he, he's brought me through uh, in a lot of ways. I'm nowhere near you know, there yet. But he's brought me more and more to this realization that no, prayer is, is actually way better than money. I mean, money's great. Lots of great things in life. But, but being desperately reliant on God, like the, the bedrock of what prayer is and the relational, not just reliance, but the intimacy that we have with God when we pray, that, that's, that's where the rich, best stuff happens. So after I did RUF, uh, I, I, I got into this church planting work. And so we, we moved over here to the east side and we, we started working on church planting. And I thought, good, the, the support raising days are behind me. We'll never have to do that again. Well, it turns out I still had to raise money in church planting. And uh, many of you know, for about six, seven years, uh, ECPC, we met at a school down the road from here, a couple miles away, J.H. Gunn Elementary School. And of course, when you're meeting in a school, you're not allowed to just leave all your chairs and sound equipment and instruments set up throughout the week. You have to set it all up and take it all down every week. And obviously, one of the most normal questions when you're doing that every week is, hey, when are, are we ever going to get our own building? Are, are we ever going to have a, a setup where we don't have to, you know, put it all up and take it all down every week? And um, no joke, not always, but often the answer to that question was, we are praying that God will give us a building. And, you know, sometimes I felt pretty sincere about that. Other times I was just like, I don't, I don't know. We're praying. And um, believe it or not, in 2020, God literally just gave us a building. And I got to tell you, it's way better than like raising money and shopping for property. Like literally just to have someone give you a building and not have to go through realtors and all of the like really tedious paperwork. It's just way better. Way better. East Calvary Baptist Church gave us the property where, where y'all are meeting right now. And, and, you know, some of the members of this church, including me, thought, wow, <laughs> like we never actually thought God would just give us a building, but he did, you know. So now, you know, we're, we're from time to time talking about repaving the parking lot for obvious reasons. If you've been in our parking lot, you know, there may be a sinkhole out there, just heads up. But, uh, yeah, it needs, it needs to be repaved, right? It hasn't been touched since probably, you know, the 80s. And, um, you know, I'm all for, you know, if, some of, if someone here is, is ready to write a check for $70,000, great. I mean, we will take it. But, but can't we all agree that it would be a better story? Like, it would be better if just some guy showed up one day and was like, I'm going to repave your parking lot. I had, a, I had an angel visit me last night in a dream, and he told me to come do this. I, that's just a way better situation. It pleases God for us to pray, and it produces better stories. But here's the thing. We all know stories sort of hinge on uncertainties, right? Drama and all these uncertainties, all these unknowns, and we don't like uncertainties. We don't like uncertainties because... They make us feel vulnerable and helpless and confused. And so, again, we, we, we tend to exchange prayer for not really control, but the illusion of control, right? The perception that we have some kind of power to make something happen. And this is a, a story as old as humanity. The first human beings, the first human beings ever, they made this, this error. They committed this sin. They swapped prayer for the illusion of control, right? Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, 
They, they were doing great. They were naked and not ashamed, which means they were totally needy and vulnerable, and they relied not on themselves or some myth of self-sufficiency, but they relied on God, and God provided for them. And then they decided, you know, we should probably have a little more control over our lives. We should, we should be able to decide for ourselves some big, important stuff, like, you know, what's good and what's, what's evil, and we should be able to feel autonomous. And... Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say it screwed up everything. It messed everything up. Like there is no problem, no matter how big or small. There's no injustice. There's no heinous evil that is committed now in 2022 that isn't directly linked to that first horrible decision to, to grasp for some illusion of control. And no, you know, maybe you'd think that, hey, you know, our first our first ancestors committed this error. Lesson learned, right? Like we don't need to. We don't need to run that experiment again. We've all learned the lesson. We won't make that mistake twice. But as you well know, it's just the opposite. It's like we've all contracted the disease of making this mistake. And so every day, without even realizing we're doing it, we're grasping for for control, the illusion of control. So, so one more example. In the, in the first book of the Bible, you'll, you'll read about those first ancestors, and then shortly thereafter, you'll read about these, these people, Abraham and Sarah. And simply put, Abraham and Sarah wanted children, like, like many married couples. And um, not only did they want children, but God promised them that they would have a lot of kids, like a lot of offspring. And so not only were they wired to want children, promised them that they would have kids. And then years went by, and decades went by, and eventually they got tired of waiting. And they thought, you know, maybe we should just take matters into our own hands. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to go read, you know, find those names in the book of Genesis and read about what happened. But basically they just made their situation worse. When they grasped for this sense of control and tried to seize power, they only made their mess bigger and their problem worse. And see, all the while God is saying it's way better it's way more joyful, it's way more healthy for you if you ask me to help and you receive everything in your life as a gift from me. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that isn't actually a gift? Right, like even if you remodeled your house, you rolled up your sleeves and you did all the hard work, God would say, but I gave you your arms. I gave you the ability to form like coherent thoughts so that you could make a measurement on a piece of lumber and then cut it to a precise size and then put it where it needs to go. I'm the reason you do whatever good, true, or beautiful thing you do. Everything is a gift. You are entitled to nothing. And this is why it's so much better when you hang around people who are really grateful instead of presumptuous. You ever had this experience where you... You go visit, maybe you have a friend or a relative, and they're just really, they just exude gratitude. This happened to me years ago when I went to visit my grandfather when he was, he was in hospice, actually, and he couldn't even walk anymore. I mean, he was literally dying. And we would just sit there, and then like a friend would show up, like someone from his community would come to visit. And, and he would just be so excited to see his friend, and then the friend would leave after they had talked for 10 or 15 minutes. And he'd say, man, I just... I'm so grateful that God gives me these little surges of relational energy so that I can, you know, say goodbye to my friends and I'm, I'm actually, you know, in tune and energetic to do that. And then I'm so glad I can still use my arms because he couldn't use his legs anymore, couldn't walk. But he'd be like, man, I, the fact that I can grab a cup, the grab that I can, you know, shake your hand or give you a hug, like he would just gush with gratitude about the fact that he could use his arms. How, how easy would it have been 
for, for a person in that situation to say, well, I'm just grumpy about this, and this isn't as good as it could be, and my hospice care is not helping me as much as they should. I didn't hear any of that. There was joy. There was thanksgiving. And God says, it's so much better when you live like that, isn't it? When you receive everything from me as a gift, you ask me for things as opposed to feeling entitled for things. And Silas and Paul and Timothy, that's what they're doing. They're genuinely asking for prayer, and they're asking for prayer for something very specific. Look again at verse 1. They ask that the word of the Lord, most specifically and especially that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and that it would be glorified or it would be honored. Now, first of all, prayer is very need-oriented. Okay, Anytime you pray, you, you are... You are embodying neediness. Like you wouldn't be praying if you had achieved the, the myth of self-sufficiency. The reason we pray is because we recognize we need help. You're admitting you're vulnerable. You are admitting you're needy. So let me ask you all this question. What do we really, really need right now? I mean, if we're asking for something big from God, what's the big need of our day? And we're all going to answer this question a little differently, aren't we? I mean, some of us... You're going to say, well, that, that war in Ukraine needs to get dealt with. That seems like a big deal. I'm reading the news, and I, I'm reading a lot about that. And you're right, that, that's a concern. But is that the biggest? Is that the biggest need? Gas prices. I mean, let's just talk where we, where we live. I mean, we, God, these gas prices are out of control. Inflation's out of control. This needs to get dealt with. And we need to get some politician to fix that. We need to, we need to get really concerned about this next election cycle and like what's politically happening. We need to get group texts under control, right? I mean, I've never like made a group text, but I've ended up on a lot. And so it's just buzz, buzz, right? Or if you have the, the audio on, it's like ping, ping, ping. And I'm like, I don't care what y'all are bantering about and all the emojiing and I don't care about this. It's a problem. Get this under control. Um, I'm thankful that the Zoom meetings are starting to die down, but we've all had our fair share. Can we all agree that it's a problem, that person who hasn't learned to mute themselves in the meeting? They're not talking, and you're hearing their dogs and their, their spouse and their kids in the background. It's like, have you not, how have you not learned to mute yourself? The background noise is a big problem. And I'm being a little bit humorous, but I'm also honestly thinking, you know, this is the stuff we get real bent out of shape about, isn't it? I mean, we're not living in Ukraine right now. If there were war, physical war here, we would definitely put our attention on that. But we are comfortable, complacent Americans. And so this is what we get real cranky about, right? The Zoom guy who's not muting himself. The person who cuts us off in traffic. This is what we think about and get bothered by. What about big stuff that everybody in the world can agree with? Healthcare. We all care about our health. Physical health. We have these, these bodies and we have to feed them and we have to care for them. That's a big thing. Or what about curing death? Wouldn't it be nice if we could cure death? Now, the reason I bring up those two points is because, believe it or not, Jesus actually, actually did have an amazing health care plan. He did. Jesus of Nazareth, people brought him like crippled people and no procedures. He would just say, walk. And they would walk. No rehab, no, no copay, no insurance involved, just you want to walk? Walk, right? Even the death thing. He would bring people back from the dead. These are huge needs. And Jesus actually enters into those needs. Question, is it ever the, the most emphasized thing? Is, is our craving to have robust health care the most important thing according to God? God never puts that in the place of highest priority. 
So you could read Mark chapter 1, and you will read about crowds of people. It'll say, it'll say at times even entire cities of people are flocking to Jesus to have their health care needs met. Their loved ones are sick, and, and just like you, they care, so they're bringing them to Jesus. And Jesus will interact with them to a degree. But then do you know what Jesus does? You know what the emphasis is on? Jesus will go off, usually up on a mountain by himself, to pray. And then when his disciples find him, they'll say, everybody's looking for you. Everybody has all these needs. Aren't you going to come back and help these people? And Jesus will say, actually, we need to move on to some other towns so that I can preach the word to other communities. These, these miracles, these healings, they can be good confirming signs, but they are not ultimate. They point you to what's ultimate. And what's ultimate, what's most potent, according to Jesus, it's the word. The word needs to speed ahead and be glorified for what it is, the active and living power of God. Another brief example story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story of this man who has died and gone to hell. And in hell, he realizes this is a bad place. I do not want to be here, but I'm kind of stuck. So here's my plan. I still have family members alive on earth. And I think he, he's talking with Father Abraham up in heaven. He says, Father Abraham, here's my plan. Send someone back from the dead. Do, do a miracle. Have someone rise from the dead and have them go tell my family members about the realities of heaven and hell and warn them away from this horrible condition that I'm in. And so his specific plan is to have this like famous homeless guy, kind of like Charlotte's version. Uh, it's a Chili Willie. Y'all remember Chili? Chili died a few years ago, but we all know him, right? Even if you never met him, you can YouTube and he, you know, he's singing Nickelback outside of someone's driver's side window. And, and we all know who he was. Um, well, let's, let's send him back from the dead. We all, we all know he died. Let's send him back. And, go, and he'll go tell my relatives. And Abraham says, you know, even if someone came to them from the dead, that wouldn't really do the trick. Because the reality is they already have the Bible. They have this, this book of antiquity that, that seems irrelevant and outdated. They have Moses and the prophets. And if, if they won't listen to the Bible, then they're not even going to pay attention if someone should come to them and talk to them from the dead. God's making this point. He's saying there is nothing more supernatural. There's nothing more impactful and potent than the word of God. And if that's true, then the word needs to speed ahead. It needs to go viral. It's not enough that we would simply be aware of the word or that we would own the word but never pick it up and really read it and apply it to our everyday lives. It has to really infiltrate every dimension of who you are. It has to dominate your life. Nothing less than that will satisfy. Y'all remember what happened on June, uh, excuse me, January 9th, 2007? Maybe beside most important, like, hinge moment of all human history. I mean, of course you know what happened. January 9th, 2007. Remember? Remember this guy, Steve. Not, not that Steve. But Steve Jobs, he got up and he, and he pulled out a little rectangle and he introduced the world to the smartphone. And now, you know, wherever you go in the world, not only do people have these devices, but they are enslaved to them, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to make us feel bad for being enslaved to our phones. I'm just making the point. It's crazy. Wherever you go in the world, people can be standing next to image bearers of God, human beings, and they're not paying attention. They're not talking to them. 
they're on their phones. This dominates our life. And I'm saying the Bible needs to do that. It's not enough, right? Steve Jobs would say it's not enough that you know about the iPhone. You have to own it. In fact, at some point, you have to have this. This is the only thing we offer. So you, you, you had to take it. And it's not enough that you just own it. It has to be with you at all times, and it has to be the thing you rely on at all times. It has to dominate and define your life. Every time it buzzes, you have to see what it's telling you. You have to be obsessed with it. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying that's what has to happen with the word. You can't just know it exists. You can't just own it. It has to get in you. It has to dominate you. It has to master you. It has to go viral, and it has to be the most important thing to you because the word is active. It's living. Ultimately, y'all, the word is a person. Jesus is the word, and he, he persistently runs after you. He chases you down, and his goal isn't just to save you, right? Save you from your sin. His goal is to save you from hell so that he can be your husband, Right, so that he can become one with you and y'all can do all of life together. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says, if, if you are a Christian, if the word gets inside of you, this is the experience. It will feel like you being crucified with Christ. And your life, the life you live, it will no longer be you who lives it, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you live in the flesh, you will live it by faith in the Son of God, not the myth of self-sufficiency, not self-reliance, but by faith in the Son of God, and you will constantly be obsessed and enamored with this story that he loved you, and then he gave himself for you. And of course, not everybody wants to be mastered by Jesus, right? Not, not everybody jives with Jesus' methodology, right? His approach to life. And so in verse 2, the missionaries are saying, you need to pray also that as the word goes viral, as it gets into people's lives and infiltrates every dimension of who they are, simultaneously, if that's happening, you'll have to pray that we would be delivered from evil men and wicked people who don't have faith. See, guys, we all know this is true, but let's just kind of break this down. I think we're all aware of the fact that the world, at least the American culture where we live, awareness of the Bible, like having some familiarity with Jesus is fine. Right? You might even say, you know, Jesus is my boy. I like Jesus. He's cool. That's fine. You can say that. But actually embracing Jesus and the way of Jesus, like making decisions that matter, that, that are similar to the kinds of decisions Jesus made, that will strike people as disruptive and reckless, and they will not take kindly to it. So let's just let's think about some of the competing values that, that lead to reality, the reality of persecution. Money. Do we care about money? I, yeah, I think, I think we care about money. What's God's view of money? Uh, well, one, one really emphatic thing that God says about money is in Matthew 19, and he says, I'm concerned with you, I'm concerned about you if you have too much money. See, we tend to think you can never have too much money. Ne can never have too much money. You know, more money, I mean... Life's a little better the more money you have. Jesus would say, I, I disagree. I think you're making life harder on yourself if you're wealthy. It's harder for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. The big life to the fullest paradigm is heaven, and, and you're actually making life harder if you're accumulating a lot of wealth. See, there's a competing value there. What about perceived safety? We like perceived safety? Yeah, you betcha. We like to feel safe. <laughs> uh, Jesus says, 
Well, I've got, I've got some bad news then, because I'm sending you out into the world as sheep amongst wolves. And uh, you might, I thought you were the good shepherd, and it um, seems like the shepherd shouldn't put sheep anywhere near wolves, let alone send them out into the world knowing that there will be wolves. But that's how Jesus puts it. Does not sound safe, doesn't seem safe. God has a different view of what it looks like to be happy. What, what's our view of happiness? Everybody's pleased with me. I'm popular. I've achieved, you know, some, some measure of people liking me and being pleased with me. That's, that's our view and definition of happiness. God says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you because you're following me. Rejoice and leap for joy. Because when people look at you like you're a weirdo, that means you're living like a prophet, right? They're like Elijah and Amos and John the Baptist. These, these guys weren't popular. They, they were the weird kids in school because <laughs> they, they looked at Jesus. They looked forward to Jesus. They wanted to live like Jesus. God's view of how to be fruitful. You know how to be fruitful? How to be fruitful. Repent. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We think fruitfulness is predicated on performance, right? N never do anything wrong. That's how you live a, per a, per a productive, fruitful life. Never have to apologize for anything, right? Like be so fastidious in everything you do in life so that you'll never have to say you're wrong or you're sorry. And God says that's actually not how you bear fruit. How do you make angels happy? Like what, what can you do to make angels celebrate in heaven? Jesus says you can repent. There's, there's way bigger parties in heaven when one sinner repents, as opposed to when 99 people apparently go through life not needing to repent of anything. We tend to interact with the Bible uh, sort of like a documentary. You know, everything I just said, we tend to look at all that and think, wow, wow, that's really neat. That's fascinating. It seems really dangerous, and I'll let the people on the documentary do it, but I don't know if it's for me. So one of my favorite documentaries is called The Dawn Wall. would highly recommend this documentary to you guys. This guy, Tommy... He climbs this portion of El Capitan, 3,000 feet, and it's like so impossibly difficult that nobody's tried it ever since. It's just blank sections of this granite rock face. And it takes him years to, to figure out the route and to get up there, and uh, he finally does it. And, you know, they're sleeping for days and days just in this tent that's bolted into the side of the rock, a little portal edge. And I look at that, and I'm very intrigued, Right? And that's kind of how we look at the Bible. We look at all these crazy stories and this crazy stuff Jesus says, and we're like, that's, that's neat for them. That's neat for them. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and all these things that God commends, these, these decisions people made by faith, and you think, that's, that's neat for them. I'm intrigued. I'll watch the documentary. I'll even promote the documentary. But here's the question. Will you do it? Because God says, my Bible, the word is not a documentary. It, it's like a draft notice. Like, I, I'm, I'm telling you to get in on this. I'm drafting you into this as your way of life. So this past year, many of you know, my wife took me to Yosemite Valley for my birthday, and uh, we actually got to see El Capitan right there, like 3,000 feet. And this is so cliche, but when you see it in person, I mean, videos, pictures do not do it justice. And you're just in awe of this. And while we were there, there were, there were these rock climbers going up in portal ledges, we could, I mean, just little specks. And um, at one point, my wife asked me, she was like, would, would you seriously ever do that? Like, would you ever sleep in a tent 2,000 feet off the ground, bolted into the side of a rock? 
And I don't know if this is true, but I did think about it a little bit, and my answer officially was and is, yeah. If I was with someone who knew what they were doing, if Tommy, the guy from the documentary, came to me and he said, I want to take you up there. I mean, he spent thousands of hours up there. I'm not saying I wouldn't be scared. But yes, yes, I would do it. I would go, yes, if somebody knew what they were doing. And that's what God's asking you. God's saying, I know this is scary. I know living a life of prayer is, is very uncomfortable for you. I know that. I know believing that the word is as significant as I tell you it is. I know, I know that's going to be hard for you. I get that. And so here's what I'm going to promise you. God says, I'm going to establish you and guard you, and I'm going to be with you. Look what it says in verse 3 and 4. You can go all in on the kingdom of God and following Jesus because he's with you. He's faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you. Hebrews says he will author and perfect even the trust that is required to, to go and do the life of discipleship with Christ. Verse 4 says, so we can have confidence not because we are intrinsically um, impressive or able, but because God is involved and he's going to take us. He's going to shepherd us. He's going to guide us. And all throughout it, we're allowed to say, you know, this makes me feel uncomfortable. This feels unsafe. Uh, I remember a preacher years ago saying, I mean, how do you think those people felt when they walked through the Red Sea? I mean, you know you know that there was like some three-year-old kid like kicking the wall of water and slapping it. And his mom was like, stop it. You're going to destabilize it. Like, you know, it's not that you felt this amazing confidence. You could, but you might have walked through with all kinds of fear and questions. But the point is, you were either walking or you weren't, right? God says, I'm inviting you to go this way. And I know it's going to make you uncomfortable, but this is the way I am leading you and I am going to be with you. The first three centuries of Christianity, you know, a lot of people who went all in on the kingdom of God, they followed Jesus, they literally died. You realize that? The first three centuries of Christianity, uh, it, we, our ancestry, we existed as a persecuted minority. In fact, we didn't just exist, we, we thrived as a persecuted minority. And the only explanation for why Christianity served and expanded, what, how do you explain that? It's because God is with us, and God is actually perfecting his power through our weakness. And it's so hard for us to believe that, but that is the truth. That's what God's doing. And you know, of all those people, all those people who have died as martyrs, people who followed Jesus and wicked, evil men have persecuted them and killed them, you know, when they died, Jesus was with them. Jesus was with them in and through death. And one of the most fascinating things to realize is that the reason he could be with them, amongst other reasons, is because he'd been there. He had already gone through death. He knew the way. Not just because he's a, a huge God who knows everything, but because he's a human who intimately experienced death. So when you're going through something hard and you're saying, God, why are you for... Personally, I've been there. I know how you feel. We have a lot of kids here at ECPC. Kids, you know, you're in school. You feel this pressure, right, to be popular, to be cool. You feel excluded sometimes. 
You're not winning the popularity contest every day. Jesus is like, yeah, I know how that feels. Jesus was a nerdy kid. Y'all know that, right? He was the kid who hung back for more church, right? When he was 12, his, his, his mom and dad left. They got like a day down the road, and she's like, I got to get more Bible. That's nerdy, right? That's not cool. You're not going to win any popularity contest by, by studying the Bible more. Jesus is like, look, I know. I, I was a 12-year-old kid. I know how you feel. I've been there, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to walk with you through this. Single folks, you feel lonely. God, Jesus was single. I mean, he's, he's married to the church, but in his human life, he, he didn't have an earthly marriage. He was single. And, and a lot of people, even his own relatives, looked at him like, you're crazy. We don't, we don't understand you. In fact, we feel like we need to intervene sometimes and save you from making some of the statements that you make. And Jesus says, I get what loneliness feels like. I get how that feels, and I can be with you in that. Parents, you fret over your children. You're anxious. Jesus says, that's how I feel about my flock. I mean, there are moments where he's leaving the 99 to go after the one, and that seems reckless, but he says, I, I can't not do that because I'm like a parent. I, I have these precious people in my life, and I have to pour my attention and my energy into serving them. Jesus knows what it feels like to lose people he loves. When he lost his buddy Lazarus, he was deeply, deeply burdened by that. He couldn't even, he couldn't even like run to be there because it was just weighing on him so heavily. Even when he got to Bethany, he didn't go straight to the tomb. He kind of lingered on the edge of town, and Martha comes out to him and is like, what are you doing? And he's like, it's hard. It's hard to lose someone you love. Listen, guys, in all of life, verse 5 says, the Lord will direct you. And specifically what he's going to do internally and mysteriously is he's going to direct your heart to the love of God. He's going to focus you not on what you have to do and how to muster up the courage and the confidence in your own strength. No, he's going to say, look at the love of God. Let me direct you most foundationally to the love of God and not to your sufficiency but to the steadfastness of Christ. So in a minute we're going to come to this meal. And in no uncertain terms, that's what God's doing for y'all this morning. For each and every one of us, he's saying, let me direct your heart to my love. Because when you come to this meal, it's, it's not that you impress God and then you qualify to come to this meal. It's just the opposite. You don't have merit. You have demerit. You don't impress God. The qualification to come to this meal is that you feel your neediness and your helplessness and your vulnerability. And you bring your neediness to God and you say, hey, this is all I've got. And he says, that's perfect. Come to me, all who are weary. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Come and buy without money. It's free. It's bountiful. It's my grace. It's my mercy. Let me direct your hearts to my love and my steadfastness. This meal is declaring to us that the author and perfecter of our faith took on flesh so that he could atone for us. You know, we've talked a lot about praying to God. That begs the question, how or why does God even listen to us? This is why God listens to you. God listens to you because of the blood of Jesus. God is so eagerly interested in everything you are praying to him about, not because you're worthy of being heard, but because of the life you did not live and the death you didn't die. Everything rides on Jesus. We've talked about the power of the word. This is the moment when the word took on flesh and did the most important act of all the activity of the word. This is the most important act of the word. When he gave his life 
to save sinners. So before we come to this table, let me point out that this meal comes with a warning and a command. The warning is that you would, you would eat and drink judgment on yourself if you didn't really believe that you needed this. In other words, if you are just here today and, and you're thinking, you know, I've always kind of been a church attender and I, I show up, I go to church, and honestly, I feel, I feel like I'm owed something for that. I feel like I'm, I'm a good Christian. I'm doing my duty. The Bible would say, do not come to this meal. That'd be like me going to a surgeon and saying, like, I feel really healthy. I've worked out. I've ate right. And now I want you to cut me open and do some really invasive procedure. The surgeon would say, you can only qualify for surgery if you have something horrible inside you. And the same is true here. If, if you have wretchedness and weakness in you, this is your, the meal for you. And, and this is the command. The command for this meal is that you would examine yourself. And really ask yourself, do I agree with God when he says, this is how needy you are? And do I want to be all in on this? Not just know that Jesus did this for me, but do I want to, as it says in Galatians 2, be crucified with Christ? Not just receive his salvation and have it as an insurance policy in my filing cabinet, but, but I want to use that as my paradigm for life. I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Because, y'all, when you take this meal, you're doing something very intimate. You're taking the body and the blood of Jesus, and you're saying, I want to put that in me. I want that to dominate me. I want that to master me. I want that to get in me and grow and increase, to rule my life, because this is the way to have life to the fullest. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for giving your life for us. In, in a very emphatic way, you tell us what our obsession, what our fixation must be. You say to fixate on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. No one fundamentally took your life from you. You laid it down of your own accord to fulfill all the prophets, all the prophecies about what was written about the Messiah. And you scorn the shame. You yelled out, you cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? You knew you were going to have to endure hell so that we could have heaven, so that we could have the guarantee that God will be with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. So God, give us a never-ending appetite for this meal, for the gospel of Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.